0: So, I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get 6 months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's really good. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gabfest. Slate's podcasts cover major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows discuss what makes a song a smash. They analyze what's going viral and decode cultural mysteries. And if we've become a part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate+. Plus. So sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash moneyplus to access all Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash moneyplus. Hello, and welcome to the We Can't Quit Elon edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Emily Peck. I'll be your host today. And I am here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. No Felix this week. He's off gallivanting in Italy. But in his place, we have the amazing Ed Lee.
1: Hello, hello. It's fun to be back.
0: And Ed is...
1: I'm an editor at the New York Times, of all places. So um, yeah, I know. But don't hold it against me. No, we
0: will hold nothing
1: against you. I'm actually not a bad guy.
0: Ed and Liz and I, we're going to talk today about Nobel Prize winners. We are going to talk about Elon Musk. Again, I'm sorry, but it had to be done. And of course, we are going to start off by talking about my favorite word, the inflation. And that is all coming up on Slate So, the inflation, as I like to call it, it's still inflating. And earlier this week, we got the September CPI report and learned that prices rose again at double the rate economists were predicting. And the core inflation measure, the one where you strip out food and energy, prices are up 6.6% from last year, and that's the highest in four decades Um, so, you know, we're obviously well past the quote unquote transitory phase of bloviating and saying these numbers are going to get better. Um, and I feel like at this point, there are some big reasons why these inflation numbers matter and why we're talking about them again. One, obviously rising prices are painful for a lot of people, especially when pay isn't keeping up, which it, it really isn't. Um, And the second big thing that everyone seems to be watching and talking about right now is, you know, the Federal Reserve, which has said they're going to keep hiking interest rates until the inflation is crushed. Um, And that action from the Federal Reserve is, you know, causing a lot of pain basically around the globe right now. And one reason I guess I wanted to talk about this is this: the Federal Reserve usually is this like... Nerdy little world that no one cares about. Um, Stacey Vanek Smith this week in NPR had a column about how everyone's now talking about Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve, and how that's worrying. And so I'm wondering, Ed, are your friends talking about the Federal Reserve?
1: Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. My friends are not as um, economically aware, and that's probably you know a sign <laughs> of a certain <laughs> kind of benefit, right? If you're if you're not as concerned everyone's generally concerned of course we still go to the grocery store and see like oh man like this costs 50 bucks and i normally spend 20 or 30 whatever it might be so we all notice it but i don't think a lot of us are necessarily wondering exactly what jerome powell is going to do next at least the normies among us i mean as reporters of course we're like 75 basis points 50 what's the next you know like let's look at that dot plot again um <laughs> for normal people it's not really a thing I
2: think. that's funny it's it's a. Uh, I i feel like there's a certain strain of uh, conservative dialogue right now where it is a thing. Um, I, I sort of use my hometown as a kind of baseline for determining whether that's happening. And I had a conversation. I was in, a, in I grew up in a rural area in Alabama, and I was back there a few weeks ago. And there was a, a guy I know from, you know, my childhood who started complaining about the Fed. He, he was on the sort of abolish the Fed wow. kind of kick. and And I was— you know, confused by what he was saying because he didn't seem to understand entirely what the Fed does. Wow! But it's it's sort of become a meme that the Fed is this shadowy central institution, the you
1: know, deep the state.
2: Says, yeah, you no, know, they think it's controlled by the deep state, and that, uh, ironically, that Powell is a you know plant of the Democratic Party, uh, and then you have to explain to them that Powell is a Trump appointee, and it's it's you know, but it, it's it's sort of been memed into wow. this weird piece of the conversation.
1: I guess I don't know like is that I mean of course with the midterms coming up, right? That's what the GOP wants. They want the debate to center on inflation and the economy.
2: Yeah, and they or, want to be able to right. pin it on Democrats. Exactly,
1: exactly, right. That and that's the thing these CPI numbers, you know, they're it's not good for the Biden administration if you want to sort of just put a cold political calculus against it, right? Which is like it's not easing the way that you said it was supposed to. And so the Republicans in the midterms are going to use this as a as a, you know, political sort of rallying point. Right. So, yeah, I get that part.
2: Do you think people are genuinely um, worried about a vocker scenario where the Fed just <laughs> goes apeshit? And you,
1: are, you know, I think I think economists certainly are wondering about this, especially with, you know, how much more can you really, really uh, do this sort of, you know, I'm going to call it quantitative to, to a degree, right? This sort of, these quantitative measures, ultimately, um, you know, it's a little bit like trying to, you know, ha- you know, hammer a nail with a feather. It's like, is that really going to do anything? Or are you just going to cause more turmoil in the markets, the bond markets, which it does have a more direct effect on. But in terms of the everyday people, like your, your friend back in Alabama, it's like, yeah, like. Do they really know what that's gonna mean for them? All they know is yes, like my grocery bills are higher, right? Like shit just costs more. So that definitely sucks. And I think we all feel it. But tying it to like exactly what the Fed is gonna be doing, I don't think anyone really knows.
0: I think one thing I've been um wondering about, so that the Fed has a dual mandate, right? It has to keep inflation to target at 2%, and it's supposed to keep employment kind of Full employment, yeah, calibrated. Um, and the last time, like Elizabeth mentioned, when we had high un- when we had high inflation, um, Paul Volcker came in and raised rates famously and pushed the unemployment rate up over ten percent. So people are, you know, wondering now, or, or economists, or I'm wondering, you know, what's going to happen with unemployment? And right now, it's just extremely low. And I, I wrote a piece this week about um, why this could be. One reason that layoffs aren't higher and unemployment hasn't gone up yet is that companies were so fast to lay people off in 2020, March and April, that they're now doing something called labor hoarding and holding on to their workers because they just don't want to go through the stress and hell of having to rehire everybody. And this brings me um, a lot of joy. <laughs> but Elizabeth, what do you think? Do you think this is actually happening or it's just sort of a calm before the storm?
2: I mean, I think it could be. You know, it's strange how much uh, the the dialogue is. You know, contradicts what's actually happening. There's, there's still. I still hear strains of, you know, we have a problem because nobody in this country wants to work, but we're <laughs> we're at full un- unemployment almost. Um, so the the labor hoarding thing kind of makes sense to me because I think the there were a lot of companies that were burned after they did layoffs, and then as the pandemic, you know, slowed down a little bit, they. Really struggled to get people back in the door. Mm-hmm. So intuitively, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I um I've written about the railroad industry now a few times because they you know they're trying to negotiate or they're trying to ratify a new contract now. The union is, um, and one thing I learned last week was that um you know when the pandemic first hit, the railroad companies like reflexively furloughed and laid off. Workers, because that's their go-to playbook, and a lot of companies' playbook now. Um, and then, when all of a sudden, you know, by um, by June 2020, demand was crazy, and they needed all those workers to come back. They called them back, and they didn't come. <laughs> and they've been struggling ever since. And I think um, I just I just love to see it.
1: No, I think that makes complete sense as well. Like if you just sort of query any kind of small business owner, right? Like they're going to tell you like, oh, just, I can't hire enough workers. I can't find them. So they're less likely to want to lay off whoever they have. And if they start to see some kind of downturn or if they start to see higher, higher prices in the supply chain, because like the pain of having the whole friction of like finding people to, to work to period, right? It's not even like you want the best person or the right person. You just need people. You just need bodies. Um, They don't want to have to go through that. So I think labor hoarding is a real thing. I think that's also part of the reason why we're seeing the CPI number. Um, And I think if now getting back to the Fed and Jay Powell and conspiracy theories, like if you were to press him, like, you know, after a few drinks and like, come on, you really want unemployment to be a little higher, don't you? Right. He would probably (laughs) say, you know, like he might nod and wink in that direction. It's like, yeah, like just the math doesn't work out. Right. Like there has to be a slightly higher level of unemployment in order for us to bring the prices down. Um, interest rates are only going to do so much around that. Um, and, you know, the whole point of interest rates is you're, you you want to sort of tamp down the money supply and like have businesses sort of cool down their spending. And But if they're going to labor hoard, that defeats that, right? So you're just like, ah, what do you do?
2: I also wonder, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about uh, the way that everyday people think about inflation, and what their metrics are, because the average person isn't like, well, core CPI is blah blah blah. <laughs> They're not, right. you know, they they have like one variable that they look they look at, and and for the last few months it's been gas prices. Yes, and gas prices are cranking down now. So, uh, what do you think public perception is of where where we are inflation wise?
1: No, I think that's a that's a great question. I think it's like we should go back to your friend in Alabama, or just like people on the street. Really, it's like. Where are you really like, where is it hurting you? You know, what are you spending more on? and yeah you all know, gas prices? Well, actually, they're going down like, yeah, yeah, my my tank's still full. It's ok. Um so i I do think there is this dissonance, right, between what's actually happening to to people in their pocketbooks versus what the political rhetoric has been, right? So this idea of inflation, which it's out there. We're all all the big media,'re they writing stories about it, putting the front page. It does affect everybody. But, you know, what is it? How does it really affect the person on the street? Where is it really hitting them? And I think, you know, also, if if labor with labor hoarding and unemployment being really low, it's like, what are we complaining about exactly? You know, yes, things cost more. But
0: wow, I really disagree as someone who, you know, shops for food and things like that. I mean, you can't not notice how high prices Have become Um, that NPR piece I mentioned before. There's a guy in there who had his like aha moment when he went to buy cinnamon rolls at the supermarket. You know the ones in the can that you twist; it makes that satisfying pop sound. Um, And they cost I don't know what she said like five dollars for a can or something. I feel like everyone has had that moment. Um, For me, it was the summer buying the two dollar and fifty cent can of Pepsi. But it's hard not to notice how how high prices have gone.
2: Yeah, I wonder too, you know, one, one area where prices have really skyrocketed is healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, they're up something like twenty-four percent. Um, but do people notice that? Because they, so many people have employer provided healthcare that's either subsidized by an employer or paid, you know, in some cases paid in full. Do you think that registers with people? That's a really good question. Um Yeah, that's kind of a hidden cost
0: though. You'd notice your paycheck isn't going up as much as you think it should be or isn't what you think it should be because they're taking more money out of it for health insurance.
1: Yeah. And I I also think it's, you know, if you're, if you're going a lot right to the doctor or you've got specialists you have to go to, I mean, yes, a lot of that is a fixed cost that is through your provider. So your employer may be, may be sort of feeling that more certainly. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know that, you are but yeah you're right i'm like i i like i love those cinnamon rolls by the way um (laughs) and like i think you're we've all felt it for sure i mean for me like i'm a big coffee drinker so you know i would go get my pound of coffee beans and then grind them and i've noticed well the price hadn't really changed but then i noticed that like the actual amount of coffee in the bag had
2: what what, there's a Mm. word there's like a term for yes there's a term for that shrinkflation
1: right exactly so i'm just (laughs) i'm paying the same amount but i'm having to pay you know for more of these bags ultimately, right? And, you know, they're not lying. It says on the bag, like what the actual, I remember instead of, it's like something like, instead of 16 ounces, it's like 12 ounces, right? Yeah. I'm like, huh, And the, but they're still charging the same, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a bit of sleight of hand, but uh, yes, I'm ultimately spending more and I'm like, yeah, coffee is expensive. I mean, it was already expensive before then and then it's like even more expensive now. So yeah, I think people are definitely feeling it, but relative to, are you able to keep your job? You know, yes, you're, Your wages are not in line with the rate of inflation. So, yeah, that also sucks. So in all kinds of ways, you're hurting. But, you know, I think Mm -hmm. there's that give and take, right? Like, well, employers are not laying people off as quickly or as readily as they had before. Yes, your paycheck sucks, but you have a paycheck. I mean, not that that should be the bar by any (laughs) means. Um, So I think it's like the economy is in a really, really tough spot that uh, that jay powell probably is just like again if you cornered him and asked him like point blank it's like can you figure this out he'll probably say i can't
2: yeah do we think it would have been better if he'd started rate hikes earlier
1: oh yeah i think i think even he admitted that too it's like in hindsight right that that whole thing it's like oh yeah we probably should have started that sooner and probably attempt inflation but like all these, you know, this black swan event of of coronavirus and supply chain and, like, there's still supply chain issues, right? So, which is really keeping prices up. So, yes, low unemployment, you know, there's a lot of cash out there. Um, things are costing more, period, because of the seize-up in the supply chain that's still ongoing. So, yes, it's just, it's. I don't know how you unstuck this, right? That's the problem. And I think, again, interest rates, I don't think is enough, which... I'm going to do the segue now, guys, right? So back in 07, 08, basically when the, the the banks were failing because of the whole mortgage crisis, Ben Bernanke, who was, you know, ahead of time, basically said, all right, I'm going to do this new thing, guys. This is called quantitative. He didn't say this, right? But it's called quantitative easing. It's basically like balance sheet economics, right? It's just, I'm just going to make more money and it's going to show up on the balance sheet and we're going to use that money to bail out the banks. And everyone was like, are you insane?
2: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're talking about this. Ed is bringing it up right now because we are going to talk about the big news from earlier this week, which was that Ben Bernanke, who chaired the Federal Reserve from 2006 to 2014 through the financial crisis. Became the first uh, policymaker to win an economics Nobel Prize.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So since 1968, when they first started giving these things out to economists, no policymaker had ever won. Bernanke won alongside two other guys, Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig. And so that was sort of the big news. And it was a little bit um controversial. But I'll let Ed, I'll let you explain um why they won.
1: So I, look, I, I think it's fascinating on a number, number of levels, right? Um, as you pointed out, it's the first time uh, a policymaker was was granted the Nobel, but specifically because he was in a policymaking role, right? That they cited the fact that based on a paper he wrote when he was at MIT, like talking about how banks, you know, are as much a factor or a function of a of a faltering or potentially faltering economy. In other words, economy fails, the banks fail, right? His point was, well, banks can fail, which then could cause the economy to fail, and it seems straightforward, right? But you know, it was it, it was sort of a revelation in a way, mm-hmm. and so um, he applied that theory to the crisis and said, we can't let the banks fail, right? Mm-hmm. They're too big to fail.
0: Basically. Yeah, back in the in the nineteen eighties, people didn't think the financial system was an important part of the economy, which seems crazy. Now, Today, especially right? yeah. for us, we've we lived through that 2008 crisis, and we're like, we know that's not true because that that crisis came from the financial sector.
2: Yeah, and I think we had in the 80s there less um, global interdependence, and so that that might have been a factor too.
1: I think you're absolutely right. It's huge. That's a huge factor, and you know, but and but there is something a little bit weird about this like 0708 crisis, right? Which is the the crisis was a financial crisis to begin with, right? Yes, it was rooted in mortgages, right? Which were then packaged and repackaged in such a way that like, there's so much more money being bet, bet on, on, these, on these sort of, on these mortgages, a lot of them, which were not good mortgages, period, then collapsed, right? And so it was of its own making. It wasn't like something happened in the manufacturing sector that all of a sudden it's like, they can pay their loans. It was sort of a very kind of, almost insular financially derived crisis. Now, there are arguments for and against that idea, but you know, it's almost like there was something self-fulfilling about that. And so then Bernanke came in and said, hey, I know how to handle this. I've studied this very closely. We can't let the banking sector fail. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. I think, you know, yes, you can't let it because it's so much a part of the guts of the economy, right? The way money flows, the way you can't this happened in the Great Depression, right? When the banks failed, like, it just prolonged the depression just because of things couldn't start up again, right? They, it was, took that much longer. And so that was his his great sort of insight. And more importantly, like, he applied it in real-world terms and basically bailed at the banks, right? And people were still up in arms about that, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's because uh, it's more like when people understand the credit crisis from a 30,000-foot perspective— you know, the the only thing they see is we bailed out all these banks and, and we created a maybe moral hazard that gives them some incentive to continue securitizing these crazy products. Um, and I'm not sure that's really true. I think I think it's a function of the fact that the credit crisis was complex and there are a lot of underlying factors and people don't really understand that. So they just see the policy result.
1: Right. It's just like you bail out the banks. Right. And like, I think you're right. I think there's such a complexity to it, but. This is sort of what I want to try to get at is there's such a complexity to it. Like this weird thing that Bernanke did, this quantitative easing, where you're basically putting more money on the balance sheet by just stating it practically, right? Like it was really clever and creative, but it's also like, what did that really do? Like is that – was it even enough in other words? Like could he have gotten farther, right? Like one of the criticisms of Bernanke is that he didn't bail out Lehman, right? If you were going to bail out all these others, but not this one, like, well, they were in much worse shape. Okay. So you're drawing a line somewhere. I get that. But like, you know, had you applied that principle, like in the principled way, like you would have bailed out Lehman too, right? Because one bank versus another, they all kind of screwed up. And so, you know, that is still a criticism. Another criticism is that, hey man, like, didn't you foresee this mortgage crisis? Like this, the ridiculousness of the securitized loan things that like, they kept repackaging over and over again. Like it was just bizarre that this was even happening. How did you not regulate that? How did you not see that coming, you know, forward? And maybe it maybe it's not a central bank solution. Maybe it needed to be legislated in some way or or regulated in, in through other agencies as well. It just didn't happen.
2: The bit about a uh, regulation, I think, is really key because I think there was some expectation that you know the SEC would come in and regulate these products, and it. It just right. didn't happen. Didn't so you ended happen. up with, you know, crazy CDO squared kind of, <laughs> right. exactly. you know, where, where the underlying assets just get completely decoupled from what the the end product looks like.
0: Um, two interesting criticisms, I thought, this week of Bernanke. One was sort of in line with what you were saying, Ed. Basically, he was slow to act because... Before he was Federal Reserve Chair, he was at the Federal Reserve um, and Greenspan was in charge. And that's, you know, when the run up to the housing bubble was really getting underway and Bernanke apparently had said at the time, like he didn't see the issues yet. Um, So that's one criticism. And the other one that's sort of interesting for the present moment that I was reading about this week was that the quantitative easing that Bernanke you know, did during the crisis, which was obviously successful in shoring up the financial system um, when it really needed it, that Powell took that playbook, you know, in 2020, which we've talked about on the show with um, Nick Timoros from the journal, and, you know, put it on hyperdrive, basically, and didn't stop when he should have stopped, as we said in the The previous segment leading to, you know, a bunch of inflation, like basically the um, that pioneering innovation that Bernanke kind of kicked into gear was taken too far, possibly by Powell um, and and get us and got us to our present moment. And I kind of feel that's like a little unfair, but I wonder what you guys think.
1: I think that's kind of right, though. (laughs) I'm going to be harsh. (laughs) I'm going to be harsh on on the Fed, Mm -hmm. Um, not for conspiracy reasons and not for gop talking points i just think i think there are a few things i think it's unfair in the sense that we might i think we rely on the fed to solve too many things Mm. i think more needs to be legislated i think more needs to be regulated um these are democratic you know (laughs) viewpoints certainly but i do think it's so complex and it's such a wild west thing that you know Everyday people ultimately get screwed, you know. When when you don't sort of really handle this, and I think that's the problem is that it's, you know, America is still, unlike Europe, right? Is still sort of this free market wild west that like that's why the, a lot of money still flows flows into this country, right? And that's not a bad thing at all. But you know, it it's not. There needs to be more guardrails. There need to be more. It just needs to be more regulation. That's just my stance on that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um another thing is you know everybody is very aware of interest rate hikes because they that's something that I think you know everyday people understand. Uh but what do you think about Powell's strategy with regard to the Fed's balance sheet? I mean, they're supposed to be tapering.
1: Yeah. Right. That's
0: what I'm I'm kind of saying. Like they they took that too far. And now the unwind of that is causing a lot of problems throughout the throughout the economy, throughout the world, basically. Yeah.
1: And I I think you you both bring up great points. And I think, um, you know, I think what's interesting and difficult, I will give Powell credit for being more transparent in his language, which I think a lot of people have given him credit for. But I also think it speaks to sort of his thinking as well, in terms of he is much more market sensitive than other Fed chairs that I've seen. Not yeah, that I'm a huge true. expert in this area, but I think he's very market sensitive. Not a bad thing. It's a good signal to take in. And of course, he takes in all these other signals as well that aren't specifically about the markets. But, you know, I feel like he's sort of like always playing catch up to the markets in that way.
2: That's also, you know, that's structural to the Fed too. It's, yeah. it's supposed to be an organization or an institution that's slow to act by design. Exactly.
1: And I think, the the whole like when, you know, previous Fed chairs like Bernanke and, and Greens, Greenspan, it's like I think they were kind of elliptical on purpose, right? Yeah. Their statements were purposely elliptical to prevent too much of an interpretation by the markets and that the markets had to sort of you're on your own, right? You have to figure it out. That's the whole point. And if there's too much of a feedback mechanism between these two entities, you end up with like – I think you get this weird like white noise that happens, right? And yeah. no one really knows how to like react to the other. It gets too close at some point, you know?
2: But I also think it can sometimes move in the other direction. Too much, you know, Fed chairs are a little too cryptic about things yeah. and people make assumptions and yes. market reacts to that. <laughs> exactly,
3: exactly. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: people that communicate a lot on to the markets should we talk about elon musk
2: <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we we should issue an apology to listeners before we even start the segment
1: this is just like a general disclaimer
2: yeah, yeah we, we we were really hoping that we could we could ban elon from as a topic generally and and we can't apparently
1: you can't quit elon you can't quit elon
2: we can't quit elon <laughs>
0: Elizabeth, will you catch us up? Yeah, so
2: the the sort of high-level version of what's happening is a continuation of uh, Elon's behavior so far with regard to purchasing Twitter, which is that he's he's sort of been just a chaos monkey in the system.
0: So let's back up. So back in April... Um, Elon Musk said he wanted to buy Twitter, 5420 a share. Get it, 420, ha ha ha. Um, and everyone was shocked and we talked about it on Slate Money. Then he backed out and said he didn't want to buy Twitter because something something spam and bots, but everyone sort of understood he just maybe got cold feet and the markets turned. Then Twitter took him to court in Delaware um, to sue him to go through with the deal. And that was kind of moving forward. The suit was kind of moving forward. And then at the end of September, we got a peek inside of Elon Musk's text messages, and they were just a total embarrassment to him. And then, and I'm not saying A led to B, but right after the public read Elon Musk's private and embarrassing text messages, he then said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll just, I'll buy Twitter. Never mind. It's fine. I'll I'll do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, he didn't want more stuff to come out, I think. The the thing about the text messages that is really significant here is that they just illustrate how little real strategic thinking went into Elon deciding that he wanted to buy, buy Twitter. And, and that sort of comports with my uh, not very flattering view of him, which is that he does things impulsively. And as a, you know, super rich guy is surrounded by yes, yes men who, if he throws out like any kind of idea, they just nod and tell him he's a genius. And so, and, and it just went too far this time.
1: The, the texts reveal that people who, who, that billionaires essentially surround themselves with incredibly unimaginative, craven individuals who will just, yes, 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 the whole thing and not really help the guy
2: well also that, that you know when they they put themselves in environments like that they're not forced to do any critical thinking and they don't realize it because they're they're sort of in a bubble and i also think in elon's case he's so accustomed to publicly communicating what he wants to do and then just expecting that it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy and he 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 gets off on antagonizing the sec which you know, i think matt levine jokes as an entire department it's just the Elon Musk department.
1: I actually think that's probably real too. Like, there's, there's got to be. There's no way they could. You know, they have at least,
2: at least ten guys you know, easily, <laughs> dedicated easily to it.
0: Right. I'm curious, Ed. I mean, you've been watching media deals for a long, 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 long time. Is there anything comparable to what we've seen in this sort of back and forth? I want, I want to buy you. I don't want to buy you. I'll buy you. Kind of
1: vibe. I mean, the closest, closest would be Sumner Redstone, right? Like Sumner was a brash, bold, you know, deal maker where he would borrow tons of cash to do these massive deals that he had no business <laughs> doing, right? That, that he actually ended up on top. He made success out of most of these deals. And so, but like, it was clear, it was very much through his gut, right? He didn't, he's not a, he's not a balance mm-hmm. sheet guy. He's not a financial wizard type person. He's a smart guy, or he was a smart guy, but You know, it was very much a gut thing that he went with. And so, but a lot of guys back then, a lot of, and they're really mostly guys, right? Um, Especially in media. um, It's very much a fly by the seat of your pants. My gut tells me this. Um, And yeah, let the lawyers figure out the the specifics, but I want this, right? The difference in this, so Elon has definitely a flavor of that. The difference though, is that he also thinks you know that he's this brilliant technocrat that he's figured out all the puzzle pieces, and that not just the product but the the fi- the finances and everything, and clearly he hasn't right? So that's where it really falls apart. It's that it's one thing to have a gut reaction to something i my instinct tells me this is what I should do, and then you have people around you sort of like temper that a little bit with like, well, it's not worth this, much it's worth that much. Yeah. We'd have to do this versus that, and're like, all right, fine. Whereas he's just like, he thinks he's figured the whole thing out by himself.
2: There's also, you know, there's nobody who would suggest that Redstone didn't understand media and how it works. And, you know, another thing that stands out about the text and and the stuff that Elon said publicly on Twitter is that he he doesn't necessarily understand it. But he assumes that his expertise in other areas is transitive, which is a a thing that I, I think is really endemic to tech billionaires? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. They think, tech people think they can algorithm the world. And I think it's sort of like having worked with people out there a lot, and I've seen this firsthand, where they think any kind of social problem, any kind of sort of even artistic problem is ultimately solvable through code. And, you know, in some some cases, they're they're right about a lot of that, but there's so much of it that they're yeah, wrong there's about.
2: There's There's a lot more like well, we'll solve poverty via the blockchain. You know?
1: Right. So. Exactly. Right. It's like, huh? And that that's what like guys like Andrew Yang sort of had that kind of appeal to, yeah. to a lot of these sort of like techno libertarian types. And I think, you know, Elon is very much of that ilk. And he has this very kind of like elementary sense of like free speech. Right. He just thinks like, yes, anyone should be able to say anything all the time. You know, that's the whole point of free speech. And yes, as long as you don't harm other people and then like, OK, great. Who got to decide that? You know, where do you draw those lines? Who, who makes those assessments? Right.
2: Also, he's gone after critics legally. So it's it's, it's sort of, you know, the disingenuousness of it is oh, astounding.
1: He He's had employees sign N- NDAs like, you know, about like, you know, potentially what, you know, alleged sexual harassment claims for one and or just sort of the company that they work for, like, you know. So he he typifies exactly every nightmare that people have about the richest person in the world, right? That yes. they can do anything they want, mostly. And, you know, he he's the living embodiment of that nightmare, right? An unchecked entity.
0: The other thing I wondered about what you guys thought, because um, he hasn't really said much about what he would do to change Twitter, you know, except for like unleash Trump back on the world, which no one... Really wants, I don't think. Um, right, but then right. I think last week or the week before he said he wanted it, Twitter to be an everything app, which I guess is the thing in in China, where you know you have one app you use to like hail a car, order groceries, text your friend um, and do your banking. And that's what he saw as Twitter's future,
2: which is a wild misunderstanding of, of what you can and can't do with Twitter.
0: I think so. And 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 really any app in the United States at this point, it just seems like and maybe I'm too short sighted, I'm not a billionaire, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but it it seems like that ship has sailed. Like the time to do that would have been, I don't know, like ten years ago, right?
2: Well, also after he said that, a bunch of people who do know what they're talking about, who, you know, have worked on apps like Twitter. Uh, pointed out that it would be better if Elon, if he wanted to build everything app, just build it from scratch instead of paying this much for Twitter, and he kept just sort of insisting that no, this is this will accelerate development, but then he couldn't explain how.
1: Yeah,
0: right. And
2: like, my phone is my
0: everything app. Like, I don't need it to be more drilled down. You know, I pick up my phone, I can do all the things he said you could do with the one app, just on different ones. It's and it's totally fine. Like, I don't need my toaster to also be my microwave.
1: Also, I, I don't know that even if he had done this 10 or 15 years ago, that that would have... Like, I wonder if there's as much a cultural aspect to this, like why you can't have a one app, at least not in this country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, ultimately, you, you would get into these antitrust concerns, for one.
2: Yeah, and data privacy concerns.
1: Yes. Um, and there's just like this great competition in the app space, period. I mean, maybe it's not great, but there is competition, is the point, right? And so... You know, I, we like the idea that not all my eggs are in this one basket, you know, and just, it's again, culturally, no, it's just, we don't like that idea, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to have, I want to have some of this choice, right? And then some of these other apps are better than others. And that, that's, that's the whole point of the, of the app economy in general. And so that flies in the face of that idea too. So I just... Where he's coming up with this, again, it's like he's still living in the PayPal days, maybe.
0: Mm. So, I mean, do you think we're going to talk about him again, you guys?
2: I, I, have, I, I have a bad feeling. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going away anytime soon. <laughs> All right. Uh,
0: let's just, let's do the numbers, shall we? Shall we do the numbers? El- Elizabeth, do you have a number?
2: Yeah, so my number is 20%. Uh, And that's the amount of traffic increases you have to malls now if you stick a grocery store in one. Ooh, that's a good one. Whoa. Who's that from? Uh, It was from a Bloomberg story. Uh, And this is particularly true for Class B malls, which are the kind that, you know, the normies go to. The Class A malls are just all luxury stores (laughs) and stuff.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. This week, um, Kroger and Albertsons are trying to merge. It sort of gives you a sense of why it's a big deal.
1: Yeah, no, that's massive. That's a huge, wow. That's a great number. I love that number.
0: Well, Ed, can you beat it? Can you beat this number?
1: No, I definitely cannot. Uh-huh. I, my number is pretty pedestrian. I'm going with $6.99. What's that? That is the price of Netflix's new ad tier service. Dun,
0: dun, dun.
1: Which tells us a whole lot of things if you really want to like kind of geek out for a second. Their basic plan costs 10 bucks, right? So this is seven bucks. What they're telling you is we think there's at least $3 and a penny worth of ads that we can stuff into this tier. Um, Chances are it's actually going to be much higher than that. In fact, based on what I know about how Hulu operates, right, because Hulu has had an ad tier since essentially the beginning, um, Hulu's most profitable tier is their ad tier. It's their best performing tier. Yeah, It generates more money per user than the non-ads one. So I think the non-ads one is like 16 or 17 bucks. The ads one from my reporting, I remember, and this is a little while ago and it's pretty much held up, is closer to 18 or 19, something like that. Um, So it generates more revenue and it generates more profit. Um, And it's also the most widely used tier. So Netflix is essentially tiptoeing into this you know, well, there's be four or five minutes of ads per hour of viewing. Not everything is going to be on there, unfortunately, but we're working on that because they don't have rights to everything to have ads against it. Um, but I think Netflix will be surprised by how many people will pay for that version, yeah. will watch the ads because fine. Um, and especially with inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then they will start to realize, oh crap, we should have done this like a long time ago.
0: But Netflix, I mean, as a user, the best part of Netflix is the no ads. Like they have the best UX, I think, of all the streaming yes. services. And yes. I, I'm curious if they can do ads better for streaming than Hulu. Because Hulu, ad, streaming ads are usually super repetitive. You wind up watching the same ones over and over. So could, Netflix could do it better. That would be interesting.
1: The, the problem is that that's something they can't control. They can't mm. control the, the the ad marketplace is the uh. problem, right? And so- that's why on Hulu you're seeing the same ads over and over again because not enough advertisers are actually buying enough of the inventory for oh. there to be enough competition for there to be enough for variety in the ads, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of destroys their I think their advantage of, of having the good UX.
1: It right. So their their ad their ad load, their ad sort of experience won't be that different from like a Hulu ultimately. So in that sense, like, they'll, it's more of a head-to-head competition there. Disney Plus is going to have an ad. I think they already have one right now, right? Or they plan to launch it soon. Um, so anyway, I think that's going to be, like, they're all going to end up in the place of, like, basic cable. They're like, oh, ads plus fees is actually the most lucrative way to go. We're never going to go back. Oh, no. And then you're just going to feel like it's cable TV.
0: No. Well, Ed, that was a good number. So my number is... or 8.7%. That is the cost of living adjustment for people who get social security. That was announced this week. Um, It's the biggest one since uh, 1981. And I think it's really cool that social security payments get adjusted for inflation. Not everything does like my paycheck, for example, just saying, um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's very meaningful for a lot of people. It's like-
1: I think it's know, a great number. That's an awesome number. Yeah. Maybe
0: feeling inflation or thinking about it or whatever, but this isn't one place where everyone really, really cares about this stuff.
1: Well, that only goes back to the what that's going to mean for <laughs> inflation and <laughs> consumer prices again, right? So you can totally see how Biden is probably like, oh man, now we're going to do this. It's like, so, but at the same time, it's like, you know, yes, there's more money, right? Yeah. Um,
0: all right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing. Thanks to Ed for coming. Elizabeth, thanks to you. We'll be back with you next week on Slate Money.
1: This is the story of the one.